0: classics Kenia academy's podcast on classic works of literature art film and music i'm andrew zorneman your host in this episode i interviewed dr christopher wolf professor of politics at the university of dallas professor wolf and i recently had a chance to sit down and discuss one of the most important legal documents in western history the united states constitution i hope you enjoyed this conversation recorded on the dallas campus in irving texas Good afternoon. Uh, Chris Wolf, it's great to be here at the University of Dallas. Uh, thanks so much for receiving me here at your office.
1: Thanks to, for you to be here. It's a great topic to talk about, and KNI Academy is doing a lot of great work, and I'd love to be part of it.
0: Yeah, thanks so much. That's really encouraging. Why don't you uh, introduce our audience to your work here at the university, what you focus on, and uh, the uh, project that you head up here?
1: Okay. Well, I, uh, I've only been at University of Dallas actually since August of 2014. Before that, I spent 30 years at Marquette University and then a few years working on a Catholic intellectual center in Raleigh, North Carolina. and. Uh, you know, Throughout that, I've been primarily teaching constitutional law. Uh, in addition, I also have a group that I'm president of called the American Public Philosophy Institute, which tries to argue that natural law is the, the best foundation for a public philosophy for a nation. So that, that's kept me pretty busy. Uh, Con law is a, a, a fascinating area to teach in because it involves both very fundamental questions that are very interesting theoretically, but then it's also very practical as well, because it actually uh, determines what the law of our country will be. Mm
0: -hmm. Very good. So for our uh, teachers out in the audience who are responsible for teaching the United States Constitution and for American history, particularly with a focus on the the development of the uh, judiciary, I'd like to ask some questions about what's a really good strategy to approach the teaching of the Constitution. And I think for most of us who are not really facile with law, with uh, the American law, it would really be helpful if you could talk a little bit about how to approach the Constitution. Uh, what, you know, how should we think about the law as a subject of study, and how should we think about the Constitution as, um, as a text? Uh, It seems like more than a document. It seems also sort of a classic text that all of us in America ought to be familiar with.
1: Sure. The, The Constitution is a quite remarkable document. And one of the first challenges teachers have, I think, is to get students to take seriously something that's over 200 years old, Mm -hmm. and that is often the subject of a lot of criticism now because multiculturalists these days will often just dismiss the, the thinkers and the statesmen of the past because they... Don't share our contemporary ideas, and uh, obviously, most importantly, on on race and gender. And so, people will simply say, "Well, you know, gee, if if any of the founders had slaves, you know, then why should we pay attention to them?" And the answer, I think, is that if you go back and you actually study the founders, you found out you find that the overwhelming you know majority of them were very deeply convinced that slavery was wrong and uh, they they also recognized perhaps more than we do today that it wasn't a simple question to ask how do we go from a society where slavery is deeply embedded to uh, to a society without slavery Uh, Lincoln argued, I think, very persuasively that the founders were very committed to eliminating slavery, that they looked forward to a time when slavery would be extinguished in our country. And so I guess the beginning point is we have to kind of take the founders seriously and not write them off just because they're 200 years old or because they lived at a time when social arrangements with respect to, to race and gender uh, were different from those of our own and, and in, in many ways uh, unjust. So I, I think that's possible, though. I think it's possible in some ways to go back and actually kind of dive in and look at the framers in their own world and see how they confronted the questions that they had to deal with at that time. And it's it's you know, you can pontificate 200 years later about, oh, you know, slavery is awful, so anybody who has slaves, terrible, and if you signed on to a document that permitted slavery, that was awful. But, I mean, the framers didn't have that luxury. If they wanted to have a union, they knew that the price of that, because some people in the South were attached to slavery, the price of that would be tolerating slavery for at least some time. They wanted to put slavery in the course of ultimate extinction, as Lincoln said,
0: but they knew it would take time to bring that about. Can you give us some salient pieces of historical evidence for that?
1: Yeah, the most obvious one is... How many times is the word slave or slavery used in the U.S. Constitution? The answer is not at once. They used all kinds of circumlocutions to refer to slaves. Three-fifths of a person's of other description, or the states shall not be prohibited from you know, permitting the importations of such people as they desire. You know, that is, the, they went out of their way to avoid the use of the word slave or slavery. And why is that? Like, well, in Lincoln said, it's because they knew slavery was wrong and they didn't want the fundamental law of our society, the Constitution, to be uh, tagged, you know, with. This word. And so they deliberately avoided it. And that's, I think, very indicative. Now, of course, not all the founders, they were, you know, objected to slavery. There were some people in the South committed to maintaining it, although frankly not too many. I mean, even the ones who thought it needed to be tolerated for a while thought that it should eventually be eliminated. But that actually was something that came later. More around the the War of 1812, you got the rise of a new set of Southerners who actually defended slavery in principle. You hardly have any of them actually back at the time of the founding. For them, it was, they just thought of it as an economic necessity. I mean, mistakenly I think. uh,
0: So so, do you, would that be the case? Uh, that is, um, would Jefferson, the principal author of the Declaration of Independence, and Madison, the chief author of the Constitution, have been of that? pre-1820. 18- Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Madison and Jefferson both were very committed to the proposition that slavery was contrary to the rights of man, and they looked forward to a time when increasing enlightenment in society would lead to the elimination of slavery. They were very explicit
0: about that. So in his I Have a Dream speech in 1968, yeah 1963, Martin Luther King invoked the Declaration and the Constitution, could he do that with Jefferson and Madison in mind would, would did he know about that distinction the that I just think heard?
1: so yeah. yeah i mean well of course i think uh i think king knew about lincoln mm-hmm. and i think you know lincoln is a great educator on what the founders thought about slavery he mm-hmm. thought about it you know very hard and lincoln was an extraordinarily deep thinker uh not just a politician but a but a really thoughtful, nuanced constitutional thinker, and he studied the founders, reflected on them, and I think he got them right. And so I, I think he's actually he's another way to kind of get back to the founders. If you look at Lincoln, he's a, a step on the path back to looking at the founders and and
0: taking them seriously. So, so in terms of our legal history, you would draw a distinction between those those two important moments, the founding itself, and then later on in the early 1800s, you would uh, – and and then you would also – is this right? You would uh, draw a distinction between the, the legal thinking of the founders and later legal expressions that had to do with um, – with slavery and, and say, segregation. So you see the Dred Scott case, uh, Jim Crow laws, et cetera. Sure, sure. Yeah, the founders wanted to put
1: slavery in the course of ultimate extinction. They were in some ways perhaps excessively optimistic in this respect. They weren't generally optimistic about human nature. They were very well aware of its flaws, but they were more confident perhaps than they should have been Jefferson especially, um, the fact that enlightenment and Mm -hmm. spreading knowledge of the rights of man Mm -hmm. would lead people to give up slavery. In some ways, they underestimated the strength of the just uh, self-interested attachment to slavery in the South. And of course, that self-interested attachment, I think, was one of the things that bred this new philosophy uh, that some Southerners adopted, people like John C. Calhoun and others, yeah. that said that slavery was actually a positive good, not just a, uh, a lamentable necessity that had to be tolerated for a while until it could be abolished. And, you know, of course, ultimately that that led to the Civil War. I mean, there was no way to resolve that. As Lincoln said, you know, our, our country could not long endure half-slave or half-free It it was going to end up being one or the other. And uh, he was very careful to respect the original deal with the South, which is that the federal government cannot go into the southern states to eliminate slavery. You know, he, he was very careful about that. But he said, we should adopt a policy that eventually leads to the elimination of slavery, And the power that made that possible was Congress's power to govern the territories. And therefore, Congress could prohibit slavery in the territories. And Lincoln and other Republicans at that time thought that if you confined slavery and prevented it from spreading, that eventually it would die out. And I think the South agreed with that. <laughs> it's one reason why they were so committed to spreading. In some ways, the the Mexican War, I mean, Lincoln interpreted that as really the slave power thirsting for more land, uh, more slave land. And uh, it's one of the reasons for that war. And so uh, that, you know, that uh, commitment of, this new commitment to slavery as a as a good thing meant that the only way it could be resolved ultimately was by civil war. You know, Lincoln was willing to abide by the by the original deal, but that wasn't enough for the South. You know, the the new South really needed to have a commitment of the country to permitting slavery to expand, mm-hmm. and so we. And so the war came, as Lincoln said, and uh, with all the the horrors of that war. And uh, I mean, if, if the teachers who are listening to me, if they can do anything, getting Lincoln in front of the students would be a wonderful thing to do. There are parts of Lincoln that people don't like because he's, he didn't believe in racial equality in the same way that we do. In some sense, you might say it was still an open question because blacks had never been free, you know it was, You know, there weren't any neurosurgeons who were black, you know, in 1850 uh, it, it really took you know, this experiment in the country of freeing the races to prove that over time uh, that the, the races were in fact uh, equal, not just in their rights, because Lincoln was always committed to that, but equal also in their capacities, their abilities to do things as well, and so uh you know, Lincoln was a was such a thoughtful person, and I think one of the greatest pieces of political writing of all time is Lincoln's second inaugural, which is quite a, a short speech. It's one of the shortest inaugurals, but you know, when you think of politicians and the way they typically are, you know, one would expect that Lincoln would be would be doing a whoopee dance, you know, celebrating that he had successfully, you know, led the winning, you know, of the of the Civil War. And it's not that at all. I mean, he, there's it's this very sober reflection on the war, admitting that it wasn't just the south that there were sins, political sins you might say. Both in the South and in the North, mm-hmm. that had brought this terrible scourge on the nation, and uh, and calling the nation to to renewed harmony. I mean, it, it's an extraordinary speech. Uh, mm-hmm. Quite frankly, it's it's almost. Uh, you know it's just rare in human nature for somebody in that situation not to just celebrate and call attention to himself and call attention to the victory but in fact to think about the fact that you know, maybe God has visited this visited visited this scourge on our nation because you know not just in the south but in the north you know we, we did things that were quite wrong
0: and, and this from a man who who had no small amount of theological doubt I mean, this was yes not, this is not a... as a
1: young man he certainly did it's hard to know exactly what his final religious yeah. beliefs were but it's hard to read the second inaugural and think that he was simply a skeptic yeah. I mean that you know there I'm sure there was obscurity in Lincoln's religious views but that he was deeply open to the religious question yeah. that he reflected on this question of especially divine providence Mm -hmm. Uh, no question about that
0: could you flesh out a little bit more that um, that distinction you made uh, a few minutes ago about how Lincoln and and of course others would hold to uh, equal rights but not necessarily uh, human equality sure Lincoln said that Every political sentiment he ever
1: had was derived from the Declaration of Independence. I don't know that's entirely true, actually, but, you know, certainly the Declaration for him was a touchstone. And so he really focuses on the self-evident truths of the Declaration. And the first of those self-evident truths is that all men are created equal. And then he asks the question, okay, what does that mean? It means especially that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That is, Lincoln was certainly well aware that human beings are not equal in all respects. They're not equal naturally. You know, some people are smarter than others, probably naturally. There's probably some, you know, genetic component of intelligence. It's only part of it, but it's part of it. Uh, Just, you know, actually, I remember, was it Adams, I think, who pointed out that one political resource is Beauty. He said there was a family in in New England that was just, they were really attractive people, handsome and beautiful people. And that actually gave them political power. It helped to contribute to their being politically influential. Good looks can help. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, it's, it, you know, it, it's, is it accidental? You know, I mean, it's true that we have a kind of telegenic, you know, age. You know, we're looking for telegenic people because, you know, the media are so important. But I think. It never hurt to be handsome and tall and to have a good speaking voice and things like that, you know. Uh, not everybody has it, but uh, a disproportionate number of influential people, you know, in business, politics, so forth, do have that. Uh, and, and that's not surprising. So there are natural inequalities, and of course there's tremendous social inequalities, you know, slavery being the most obvious one. So Lincoln said, well, obviously, you know, You know, people aren't equal in fact now. But he says, What did the founders think about that equality? He says, They told us they moved from equality to endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. That is, That's where we're equal. He says, I don't know whether a black woman, you know, working in, you know, the field somewhere is my, necessarily my intellectual equal, but I do know she's my equal in being able to, you know, have the fruits of the sweat of her brow just as much as I have mine, you know, and that is, people have rights. What rights? Especially rights to life, to liberty, and to pursuit of happiness, and he he was he made a very powerful claim i mean again another wonderful resource for high school teachers is you know, to get students to read some of the lincoln douglas debates yeah. i mean it's fascinating seeing yeah. you know the give and take of lincoln and douglas uh, harry jaffa a scholar who died recently in california wrote two books and the first one focused especially on the lincoln douglas debates and uh, so the house divided uh, uh, the, cris- a, the, the crisis the crisis of, of a house divided, divided yeah. right was the one on on that and then there's a new birth of freedom is a a later one that he wrote and uh, it's getting kids to confront them and for one thing it's it's fascinating to let's say compare the Federalist Papers or the Lincoln-Douglas debates with what passes for political rhetoric today you know which is in a way so dumbed down you know I mean Lincoln and Douglas are making these really you know, interesting and sometimes complex political arguments for an ordinary audience of you know farmers and mechanics and and others. You know, and uh, they didn't talk down to them. You know, which is which is impressive. And I think we shouldn't talk down to our students either. You know, yeah. we should we should give them access to really serious thinking about these things?
0: Yeah, I think so too. I think it's one of the the maladies in in. Education in America today. There's a, a, an assumption that the typical American young person is incapable of, you know, hard, rigorous thought. You shouldn't dumb down to them. But if they have a good seminar with a yeah. good teacher, yeah. boy, do they respond. Yeah, you that's know? very, that's wonderful. Yeah. It's dynamism and rigor uh, combined. Yes. Um, can you uh, help us a little bit? and Try to help us understand something like the, uh, the the normative content of the Constitution the way it was crafted into the to the the text so we, we read the preamble and I think a lot of us just kind of skirt right past it we get to the nuts and bolts the plumbing you know of, of the Constitution and sure. we, we skip that earlier you talked very eloquently about the Bill of Rights and refl- reflecting uh, An aspiration to you know, you know a, a society where we won't have slavery, right? We'll, we'll get beyond that. And one of the reasons we have the Bill of Rights is we're going to we're constructing a framework in which people will be able to live and be protected, uh, no matter their race. Can can you explain a little bit about that moral content or that normative content to the
1: Constitution? Again, I return to Lincoln. In some ways, he you know he talks about. You know, the the fact that the Constitution really follows on and reflects the Declaration. You know, the Declaration kind of lays out these self-evident principles that talk about what the goal of government is, and especially, ultimately, the protection of rights, and then you talked to the Constitution as kind of the mechanism for achieving that. you know we took a first stab at that with the Articles of Confederation and it just it didn't work out you know mm-hmm. the government needed more power to perform its responsibilities, both protecting the nation against foreign enemies and also providing for uh, you know stability tranquility, and prosperity at home. And the Constitution did that. In some ways, I'd say the preamble is kind of, you know, a reflection back on what the Declaration's talking about. And uh, and so the, the Constitution is, a, in a way, the practical means to achieve the ends specified by the Declaration. And I think the heart of the Constitution, contrary to what many people think today, is not the Bill of Rights, although that's very important, of course, but the heart of it is the commitment to self-government. I mean, that's what the Constitution provided for. What it did is it set up a government that had certain limited but very important uh, ends, uh, especially the protection of the nation in foreign affairs, and then providing a framework, especially for economic activity uh, domestically. And then... it established these various branches of government that had the job of, you know, identifying the specific ways in which to use these powers. I mean, one of the key provisions of the Constitution was the the last sentence in Article One, Section 8, which is the powers of the national government. And the last sentence says, in addition, in fact, to all these other powers we've talked about, Congress shall have the power to pass all laws which are necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers. Meaning by that, okay, well, let's say one of the powers is to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes. How do you regulate commerce? Well, the framers were under no illusions that they could predict what commerce would be like in 10 or 50 or 100 or 200 years. So they set up a system. They set up a system of government, a system of self-government, you know, where you had a legislature that has the core of federal powers that's responsive responsible to the citizens. You have an executive who has special powers in foreign affairs, but is also playing an an important role in domestic affairs as well, especially in the the recommending of legislation and the administration of the laws. You have the judiciary that has the responsibility for interpreting the laws and applying them. Uh, And that means both you know, vindicating the powers of the government that are necessary for the well-being of the people, and also limiting those powers in line with uh, congressional restrictions. And so, you know, the framers set up this system of self-government. They didn't claim to provide all the answers. You know, they knew they couldn't provide all the answers, but they set up a system where we could govern ourselves over time. And this framework includes certain limits. The ones that are probably best known are the ones in the Bill of Rights, Mm -hmm. and many of those are very, very important. You know, protection of religious liberty, protection of free speech and press, protection of any legal procedural rights, and and so forth. Uh, But I think sometimes we lose track of the fact that the most important thing the Constitution did was set up the system of self-government Which really requires that citizens take their responsibility seriously, you know, that they try to follow and understand what the issues of the day are and communicate their wishes to their representatives.
0: Uh, James Madison was an early advocate of publicly funded education at the primary and secondary level, and mm. scholarships for college for mm. those who couldn't afford it. Precisely for mm. that reason. So not had, just
1: Madison; it goes yeah. back. But you know, you can go back to the Northwest Ordinance. Mm. You know, under the Continental Congress, even before the Constitution, and it deliberately set aside parts of all the townships for education. And for the record that education wasn't completely secular because they talked about the fact that religion and morality were important for society because it Mm -hmm. got people to act well you know respect other people's rights perform their own duties and so they recognized there was a connection between religion and morality and so education you're right it wasn't an at that time, really an issue of the, of the federal government, the central government. It was an issue of the states, primarily, mm-hmm. and and one of the most important issues of the states.
0: Yeah. Uh, so uh, if that's the case, then would, would you disagree with those who think that uh, you can sort of draw a direct line from that one aspect of Locke that kind of points to um, really a thoroughly modern notion of individualism all the way to sort of the autonomous self today and sort of the upending of kind of a unified culture. If, In other words, is he the the, the principal voice here at the founding shaping the Constitution, or is he one of, of many? I mean, you mentioned religion. Right. It seems like that would belie the that influence would belie Mm -hmm. a strict Lockean influence.
1: Yeah, I I remember once many years ago reading an article on whether America is Lockean, and I always thought that what the guy proved is that Locke wasn't Lockean. You know, that is that, uh, that, you know, Locke himself is sometimes read uh, through excessively individualistic lens. Uh, yeah. uh, but it's certainly true that Locke was only one influence on the founding and that there is a, obviously a good deal of individualism in Locke in, in his social contract theory. But it's not it's certainly not as individualistic, I think, yeah. as modern autonomy theory would make it. But there are lots of interesting... Uh, strands that kind of, uh, or maybe say streams that flow into the founding, different sources. I actually was teaching a course on natural law and the American political tradition this summer, uh, with a friend named uh, Jim Stoner from LSU, and uh, Jim was especially responsible during that week for uh, a number of sessions on the common law and Blackstone, mm. and the common law has very very deep roots that go back well before Locke, that go back really, in some ways, to late medieval times. Uh, You know, Magna Carta is a medieval document. And so common law is actually one way that certain kinds of non-Lockean strands kind of are become part of the of the American political tradition and of course any
0: American lawyer at the founding would have studied Blackstone that would have been the core uh, of his education yeah
1: absolutely Uh, because he was he had somehow you know after Cook you know he was the one who had given the the greatest the most notable summary of the common law uh, and he was widely read in America and so you know that's one factor of course you know an overwhelming majority of Americans were Protestant Christians who were rather serious about the Bible. And so that certainly, you know, played into uh, American political thought. You know, one thing that people do that's a mistake is they focus just on the federal constitution. And we should keep in mind that the federal constitution was primarily to set up a new government that had quite limited purposes that focused especially on foreign affairs and on certain a certain general framework for the economic life of the nation but the vast majority of political life was lived at the state and at local you know township levels mm-hmm. and uh, people lose sight of that and so because the, the central government was so limited in what it was concerned with, some people kind of study the federal government and say, oh, that's what government was all about, right. ignoring the fact that state governments did a huge number of things that the federal government didn't do because nobody wanted the federal government to do those things. I mean, they wanted the state governments to handle you know many of the issues uh, that that the states were competent to do, to handle themselves. So for example, all the regulations of morality, nobody wanted the the federal government regulating morality, but what you might call family reinforcing sexual norms were part of the common law at the state level. And so they they were an integral part of the founding. And in some ways what you can the way you can view American history is that in particular intellectual elites who tend to be more and more influenced by modern autonomy theories have systematically tried to weed out of the founding the elements that they don't like and especially the the less individualistic you know uh elements that, the parts that are less oriented toward a kind of radical personal autonomy. And uh, and that's very unfortunate. It comes from not looking at the founding as a whole. You might say, you know, I'd encourage, I'd say it this way, I'd encourage teachers of uh, American history and, and politics Go back and look at the American Constitution, but not just the American Constitution, capital C, but also the American Constitution, small C. The American Constitution, capital C, is a wonderful document. I spend most of my life studying it and teaching it, and it has so much about it that's really great. But it's only one part of, in some ways, even... A smaller part of the American Constitution, small say, which requires studying state governments, state laws, the common law, all the all these other things that uh, that sometimes people overlook.
0: Yeah, wonderful. Um, in the Founders' vision, uh, the judicial branch, uh, I think. They thought of as going to be the least dangerous branch, right?
1: That's what they said. In and, Federalist uh,
0: Number Seventy-Eight. So that, so that story uh, took some significant turns away from that, right? Over yeah. the course of time. So,
1: well, actually, Hamilton qualifies this in Federalist Number Seventy-Eight. He says it's the judiciary is the least dangerous to the rights of, of the citizens. He said, well, of course, as long as it's kept separate from the legislative and executive power. Mm-hmm. If you have a union of the judicial and legislative and executive power, then it becomes very dangerous.
0: But Which means what? What, what does that mean to be, have a union of those three?
1: Well, what it means is that if you have the different branches each performing their own functions, then the j- judges are not going to be a threat much of a threat I mean, they might you know perform certain instances of injustice once in a while but they're not likely to systemically threaten rights in the the overall political system what happens though if over time the judges cease to be judges and, to, and start to exercise legislative power. That's a way that you can get a union of the judicial and the legislative power. Got it, yeah, got it. And that potentially is a, a deep threat to the rights of the community. And I think that's, in fact, what has happened over the course of American history.
0: Mm-hmm. Can you uh, point out for our listeners maybe three or four Sort of most formative junctures in American history okay. where that that developed. Okay,
1: I, I wrote a long book on this. I it know you did. It's called it, the, it, the Rise it, of Modern Judicial Review. It, it's a
0: great book. I commend it to all the <laughs> listeners of this podcast. Right. And try
1: to try to uh, try to explain very briefly how we got from the founding, where judges I think were limited uh, to judicial power, to modern judicial power, which is fundamentally a kind of legislative power. And the way it happened, I think, was this. I think there were three stages of judicial review in American life. The first was from roughly the founding until the end of the 19th century. I think during that time, judges pretty much tried to stick with interpreting the Constitution. Now, they might have some really different views of the Constitution. You know, John Marshall and Chief Justice Roger Tawney, his successor, had quite different views. Marshall had a view that was more nationalist or federalist, and Tawney had a more states' rights view. And I think Marshall was right, but I think both of them really were making a good-faith effort to interpret the document. By the end of the 19th century, I think you have a new era that goes from, let's say, roughly 1890 to 1937. And during this era, what happened is that the dominant forces on the Supreme Court, the, the, the most of the justices, while completely sincere about their assumption that they were simply doing what had always been done, started to engage in something new. And that was a conservative judicial activism. You know, at the end of the 19th century, there was a great rise in property rights and the founders valued property rights, but they always thought that property rights could be reasonably regulated by uh, political authorities. By the end of the 19th century, property rights were becoming, because of a certain kind of laissez faire capitalism, they were becoming emphasized more and more, I think in some ways overemphasized, and the judges were very restrictive on the power of legislators to limit property rights. So, for example, In the name of property rights, the courts would strike down things like minimum wage laws or maximum hours laws that restricted, let's say, bakers to working no more than 60 hours a week, uh, or laws protecting the rights of workers to organize. Now, whatever you think about the content of those laws, you know, I think founders would have said, well, hey, well, this is something for the legislature to decide. The Constitution doesn't say anything about them. The judges at the end of the 19th century had this new conception of the due process clause, and without intending to do so, I think what they did is they read their own economic views into the due process clause. And the result was these four decades, really, of conservative judicial activism in which the courts uh, used the due process clause to strike down a lot of economic legislation that they thought was unwise or unjust. And that is fundamentally a legislative power, I think. They were making policy for the country and overruling legislative policy. And again, ir- irrespective of what you think about the policy, right, we're right. just asking about who should have the the authority. Now, the key thing that happens is the way that people reacted to this conservative judicial activism. There were two routes that you could have taken. The first route would have been to say hey, you guys are reading something into the Constitution that's not there. You can't do that. You should return to being judges and you know leaving policy matters to legislatures. That's not the way the critics of conservative judicial activism uh, reacted. Under the leadership of Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., uh, absolutely central figure in American legal thought, what Holmes did is he conceded that the justices who were promoting conservative judicial activism were right about the founders. He said, yes, it's true, the founders would have been opposed to these kinds of legislation. But then he said, but that was a century ago. You know, that was back in the simple agrarian days of 1789. We have a new modern industrial economy And so, for a new age, we need a new interpretation of the Constitution. And so, in effect, what he's saying is that the judges have to adapt the Constitution to the times. Now, Marshall would have said the Constitution is adaptable. It contains within itself the means to adapt, especially through the Necessary and Proper Clause. But Holmes is saying, no, no, the Constitution has to be adapted. That is, in subtle ways, it has to be modified or changed to bring it into line with these new and modern circumstances. Now, that was a, a, a very fundamental change, but how fundamental it was, was hidden. It was hidden for this reason. What's the practical effect of Holmes's jurisprudence? It's that the judges will cease to be activists, and they will let the legislature... Pass this legislation that kind of updates our policy for a modern era. That is, the initial impact of this living Constitution idea was to give legislators more leeway to legislate. But, of course, that's not the only way, the only direction you can take this modern notion of the living Constitution in. You could also say, as the court eventually did, Well, if the Constitution is a living Constitution, that means that maybe we can not only uphold the legislature doing new things, but maybe we can make the legislature do new things that we think are necessary. And I think what happened is that a lot of these people, the students, the the disciples, the children of Holmes, took over the Supreme Court after 1937. You know, he was a dominant educational figure in the law in the early 19, in the 20, early 20th century and so the, the, his children you might say took over uh, uh, with Frank and Roosevelt's appointments after 1937 and so what do they do? Well they start off initially by undoing conservative judicial activism okay fine so far as that goes but then the, the problem is there's some parts of the constitution that they're not entirely happy with they're not happy that that the founders originally thought of religious liberty as something that permitted the states to promote religion. It just had had to do it on a non-discriminatory basis. They couldn't favor one sect or another. But they could kind of promote religion in general. That's why you have things like Thanksgiving Day proclamations or in God we trust on the coins or things of that sort. Well... After 1947, the people, the dominant forces in the court, they weren't happy with that. They wanted to say that American government has to be neutral, not just among religions, but between religion and irreligion or non-religion. And so what they did is they changed the notion of establishment, you know. Or it may have been that originally the right to self-incrimination applied at trial, well, the Warren court wasn't happy to apply to trial because if the police acted badly before the trial, that meant you know the self-incrimination clause wouldn't help them. So what they do is they take the self-incrimination clause which in in the constitution is about the trial, you know, mm-hmm. being a witness against yourself at the trial, and they move it back into the criminal investigation phase. And you know, again that policy may be good or bad. But it's not in the Constitution. You know, basically the judges are adding to the Constitution. And one thing that really promoted this, one thing that gave the court confidence about reading their own views about social reform into the document was especially the the landmark case of Brown versus Board of Education. Because here you have a situation where there's a you know terrible injustice in the South, this racial inequality, and the court intervenes in order to strike down racial segregation, and people say, wow, this is a wonderful thing, and it gives the court a tremendous prestige, a tremendous moral capital, and the result is the court starts to get confident that they can promote lots of social reforms. And so they start doing lots of things, you know, uh, to, in effect, update the Constitution to modern times, to expand its rights in various ways. And so to take one classic example, you know, they think, There's a privacy right in the Constitution. It's not there literally, but they kind of invent it in a case called Griswold versus Connecticut in 1965. And then eight years later, they hand down Roe versus Wade, where they read into the Constitution, which says nothing whatsoever about abortion, an almost unlimited right to abortion. I mean, it's really a radical kind of decision. So this is my story of how things changed. Initially, You know, you had the conservative judicial activism, and they didn't really, in some ways, understand how much they were actually changing things because they thought they were doing the same old stuff. You get the critics of that who are, you know, rejecting that, but the initial impact of the critics of their living constitution is actually to get the judges out of policymaking. So how radical that shift is is kind of disguised or hidden. And it's not till later that it starts to bear fruit as the court starts to develop more and more policymaking powers. And one of the first times they use that in a really broad way is Brown. And that's, you know, Brown is a very morally attractive decision in many ways. I mean, I actually don't think it's justified by the wording of the Constitution. But, you know, morally speaking, it's very attractive. And so, you know, it kind of gives people this hope or expectation that the court could do good things And at that point, you know, we start to get a Supreme Court that's filled with people who have their own pet ideas of what the country needs, and they're willing to shove it down the country's throat. So you get abortion, you get gay marriage, you get... You know, many cases in which strict separationism, which goes far beyond what the founders envisioned as the relationship of church and state, went far beyond that. I mean, all kinds of areas. And sometimes, actually, even on the modern court, you get some conservative activism as well, I think, where uh, some people in the court will, you know, carry the, uh, the idea of judicial policymaking on uh, – in the direction not just of liberal policies, but sometimes in the direction of conservative policies as well, although that's that's less common, I think, than the, the more liberal policymaking. So that's that's my story about how things change. It you know, took these steps and it was kind of disguised each step along the way what the implications were until by the end of the 20th century, it is now really deeply ensconced. The legal profession as a whole is committed to these broad views of judicial power, which make it very, very difficult to undo, which is one reason why the judicial nomination process that we see today is... So crazy. I mean, we, why we have the incredible polariz- polarization and intensity of judicial nomination battles. Well, it's only common
0: sense. If the judges are going to be lawmakers, isn't that what you'd expect? And I, I thought you put it so well earlier when you said that uh, Justice Holmes was uh, uh, something of an educator to Very much several so. generations yeah. of, uh, of lawyers and, and judges. And there's a sense in which, you know, um, his academy holds sway, right, <laughs> in, in American legal culture. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, Chris, this was uh, a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for taking time to, to uh, talk with us. Uh, everyone who's listening. Go out and <laughs> to your library or seek out a, a used copy of uh, Modern Judicial Review. Actually, right? it's, the Rise not, just, of it's Men- not
1: just a used copy. Oh, it's oh, still yeah, in so print. Okay. Sure.
0: Yeah. It's called The Rise of Modern Judicial Review, right? Correct. Yeah. That's right. It's a wonderful mm-hmm. book. I, I read it when it first came out. I highly commend it. Again, thanks so much. Uh, thanks for your work here at the University of Dallas. And uh, I, for one, would love to be in your classroom studying all this. And, and I think all of our listeners are going to be pretty fired up to, to okay. engage their students in a study of American history and the Constitution and uh, the American founding. So thanks that's again. A, that's a,
1: If that has that effect, then I'm, I'm happy that we talked today because that would be a, a great effect to have.
0: I'm sure it will. Thanks again. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Classics. I hope you enjoyed the interview and we will keep the conversation going. We have more great episodes coming soon, so please join me again and bring your friends and family. I'm Andrew Zorneman. For everyone at Cana Academy, we look forward to meeting you again on Classics.